This is Steve Goodrich, known on the trail as Bird Shooter, and this is N2 Backpacking, a podcast for both hikers and backpackers. Hello and welcome to episode number 7 in the N2 Backpacking Podcast Series. This is Bird Shooter, and tonight we're going to speak with Philip, a.k.a. 3-Dub, or the Worldwide Wanderer. He earned his trail name early in life, growing up in a military family. Actually lived all around the world, and as a post-college graduate, spent some time traveling the globe. But tonight we're going to talk about some places like Nepal's Annapurna Circuit which is a 17 to 21 day backpacking trip that reaches elevations of 17,769 feet and is considered by many as one of the best treks in the world. We're also going to talk to Philip about his travels in the Samaria Gorge, which is a national park on the island of Crete in Greece, Machu Picchu, a two to four day trek that he did on the Inca Trail in Peru, and finally to Mount Sinai, pilgrimage site of the burning bush in Egypt, where he hiked to a Greek Orthodox monastery called St. Catherine that dates back to the 6th century. Philip also gives some thoughts on international travel, some tips for planning and preparation, logistics, and shares some major mishaps and points of adventure that he experienced on the road. That said, here is Episode 7, Global Backpack. This is Bird Shooter here. We're here for the Lake Burton interview tonight, and we've got uh, Philip Boyd, a.k.a. the World Wide Wanderer, somebody that um, was experiencing international travel even before he got into backpacking, as I understand. So, uh, Philip, thanks for being on the uh, podcast this evening. <laughs> thanks for having me. So hey, we we, um, we were talking about this earlier, but I know you grew up in a military family, mm-hmm. and you've lived uh, in many places across the world. So tell me a little bit about your early years, kind of pre-backpacking years, where you grew up, and uh, some of your experiences there. Uh, it was predominantly what most of the you know military base installations, whether it's you know Virginia Beach, San Diego. Um, one of them was uh, Guantanamo, and you know those were probably the the first formative years that you know uh, I really got to I don't know I guess experience some a place that was so much different than what I had known before, and uh, even though it was a military base. So, so to Guantanamo Bay, most of our listeners know Guantanamo Bay from the 9-11 years, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of curious to get your take on how it was different then than the kind of post-9-11 years. It's probably not much different now. Um, you know, really it's just guarding the border between, you know, the military base and, you know, Cuba. The embargo is still, I'm sure, very strong. Um, as far as I, I wouldn't expect it's probably more modern because mine was probably you know post 50s post 60s you know 
um, you know, technology. But now, you know, we only had TV, what, like probably six, eight hours a day at the most. Um, on the weekends, we might get 12. And, you know, depending on the broadcast that we would get, you know, from uh, the states. You know, we would get things like Hawaii Five-O, the regular primetime, you know, stuff. Love Boat? <laughs> no, that was way before Love Boat. <laughs> this was like 67, <laughs> 68, 69. We're, da we're dating ourselves here. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess it would probably be... Uh, I don't know if I don't remember the, something like the dating game. Most of the stuff I remember were like news broadcasts, uh, movies, you know, on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, but yeah, the community in Guantanamo as a kid, it was really very close knit, and I'm sure it's probably the same way now. Um, everybody has barbecues and cookouts all the time. Just the weather's great all year round. So, and, and I gotta believe there's some Monday night football in there, uh, probably. I imagine they, you know, now they've got 24/7 TV. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's probably a lot more different than when I was there. It was definitely considered more remote, you know, as far as being offshore. Even though you were on a military installation, you were literally could not go out into the country that you were stationed in. You were basically, you know, the base, and that was it. But for a child, I had a very small, you know, little world that was around me. You know, I took my dog to school with me every day, <laughs> every day. So I know you've lived in Japan. You lived in Germany, I believe. And so was Guantanamo Bay your kind of pre-backpacking, you know, your best international experience? I wouldn't say my best. It was, you know, I was a child, so it was very formative for me. But, uh, you know, the traveling that I did later on, you know, in my late 20s was kind of started off as a six-week vacation and kind of turned into this three-year kind of odyssey, I guess. That's awesome. So, yeah, I want to definitely get into that, but let's first uh, drill down into the Philip Boyd Worldwide Wanderer, um, <laughs> the, the catalyst for your backpacking experience, to say. Actually, I think it's just a means to an end. Um, anybody that travels for a period of time is always coming across a situation where they may have to sleep, you know, on the side of a road, you know, maybe sleep in a hayloft or a barn or whatever is available, depending on the level of the travel that you do. And if you travel for long enough, you know, you're doing some hitchhiking, you're having to actually walk from one town to another, you know, things like that. Um, you, you know, it starts to rain, you know, and you're actually caught out in it, you know, what do you do? So it kind of one begets the other, really, believe it or not. So so what started it for you? I mean, what what was the, uh, I, I think you had mentioned you were in Scouts as a kid. I mean, what, what really started you backpacking? Well, you know, <laughs> this is going to seem weird, um, just kind of like as a, supposed modern person you're you feel a little disconnected from what nature is and that's really what backpacking i think does is at least kind of get you out there i don't know how connected sometimes you can be but i don't know sometimes you see a sunset or a view and you know you're taken to the sport at that point <laughs> yeah you kind of can't help it 
if you can, if you can, you know, call it that. But so, a question for you because I, I know you well, Philip. We've spent many, uh, many nights on the trail together in the southeast, <laughs> particularly cussing in and just cussing around the campfire. Absolutely. Um, but you've done some amazing trips, like you know, well beyond um, most of the experiences a lot of backpackers that I know have done. Uh, you've been to Peru. Yeah, you've yeah. been to Mexico. You've been to the Middle East on uh, different different ventures. I, I don't know if you've been to New Zealand, but I think we've had some talks there. Uh, well, that's on the life list, yeah, New Zealand. So let's talk. Uh, let's talk first about Nepal, because another another yeah. exotic international destination I know you've been to. Yeah, um, probably my favorite place, you know, to have visited uh, out of. Out of many, really. I mean, but, you know, you want to talk about a high-altitude hiker's paradise. Um, it's completely and perfectly set up for very long trips, and you just walk from village to village. And, you know, you can take as long of a walk or as short of a walk as you want to do. And it just depends on how much time you have available. And that's really the first time that, you know, I ever experienced something where you actually kind of disconnect and you are just on this walk and you still have more farther to go farther to go. I think it took me what 23 days so th this is the Annapurna circuit I believe mm -hmm. you're talking about yeah. right which uh, you know 17 21 days I think is kind of the norm you want to talk yeah. about that experience a little bit yeah well you know uh, usually you know, it was really lucky that I had enough time to be able to acclimatize before I actually started the hike. So, you know, being able to spend a number of days in places like Palco, especially like when you go to Peru, you need to spend a number of days in Cusco or in, you know, um, some of the other high altitude, you know, towns or cities that start on a lot of these treks. And... You know, that really will determine probably how well or how bad your hike is, or how long or how short your hike is going to be, depending on altitude sickness. Um, once you're on the trail for, and as you probably know on the Appalachian Trail, once you've been on the trail for a number of days, your fitness is just getting better and better and better. And your, it's amazing. Yeah, your endurance, you know, you find out it's to a large degree more mental than it is sometimes physical. Right. Um, it's, it's amazing how your body responds to what you put on it and then how you mentally adapt to a situation. I think that's the big one is how you mentally adapt. You know, um, before what you were looking at, you've seen before now and you've done it. You know, once you look at a 40 degree, or no, I wouldn't say a 40, probably a 50 or 55 degree grade that you're having to do for an hour or two at a time, you just have to break it down into smaller pieces and start, you know, completing those pieces to get the whole thing done. So, so the launch city in Nepal is is what city exactly? And what, what is that like? It's probably... Well, it depends uh, on where you're going, but for the Annapurna Circus, it's Pokhara. Okay. You know, you start off there. Um, let's see if I remember correctly. Depending on the direction, you can either start, I think, from Demure, uh, going from the east, going north. If you, I started west, 
which was part of the Johnson track, I believe, and then going up to the sanctuary. And then you circle on around, and then the top part, the hard part, is the Thornglaw Pass. And that was probably the biggest challenge I've ever done in my whole life. Um, I think it's, what, 17,500 feet? Just over 17, I guess. In, in elevation gain over the uh, course of the trip? Is that well, what you it's mean? Well, it's the high point of the whole trip. I mean, your average altitude, I believe, is around 12,000, 13,000 feet. Um, you know, you hit the sanctuary and other spots. You're hitting 14, 15,000 feet all the time. Um, the thing is, is the elevation gains and losses are dramatic. I mean, you literally will spend a half of a day just going down into a valley and then spend the other half of the day climbing back out of it just to be able to get from one ridge to another. Uh, sometimes you walk around the sides of these hills and mountains and you're constantly just going around them. You're just on the edge of this mountain, just hiking right around from one edge of turn to the next. Now, is this something that you need... Um a lot of money for? Is it something you can kind of do on the cheap? Like, um, you know, what's it take to pull something like this off? Well, you know, I think uh, probably if the, if the rules are the same going into the park, you literally have to carry cash for your daily expenses, you know, for your room and board um, and whatever meals that you eat. Typically, that's going to be pretty cheap. Now, when I did it, it was very cheap. I think I did the whole trip for like $350. Which is amazing. And that was uh, how long ago, though? Yeah, it was 20 years ago. <laughs> so, you know. so I'm guessing it's a little more expensive now. Well, and I still had money left over when I came back, you know, from the hike. And there were also other expenses that, you know, really didn't translate into an expense so much as it was there were some places we would stop and either help them clean up, you know, do chores, whatever, and we wouldn't necessarily have to pay for, you know, sleeping that night. We'd still have to pay for food um, and drinks and stuff like that. But, you know, there were other ways that we could actually, you know, look after the place while they had to do their daily business and if, as long as we were just taking the day off from the trail which, you know, was two or three times maybe during the course of the trip. It's a little way of saving some money. So the Annapurna circuit, now what, what kind of distance are we talking here? Like mileage, mileage-wise, or kilometers, or however you want to measure it. I'm not sure. Exactly. <laughs> I guess it's been a few years for you. Yeah, it has, actually. Um, I think we were averaging really only about seven miles a day. Uh, depending, some we actually did um, more, but I would say average, we were doing like seven a day. So, that, I mean, quick math, and I'll be the first to admit, Philip, I am not a mathematical wizard, but, you know, seven miles a day times, say, 20 days, you're, you know, you're looking at about 140 or more miles on this trail, right? Yeah, I would think so, yeah, yeah. So... Any uh, interesting experiences that you recall from that uh, from that hike? Well, you should ask. <laughs> I'm sure you have many. <laughs> um, well, some of the things you know that you that probably anybody that's traveled knows is 
it's kind of different for all of us. We see these little details and you know nobody else sees them. You know, we, we just see them for ourselves. Um, when I got up to the sanctuary, you know, it was all fogged in, cloudy, it was snowing, it was sleeting, you know, the weather was not good at all. Everybody just wants to get in, you know, into the, you know, sleeping bags and just warm up and have some tea and, you know, just try and get out of the weather more than anything and warm up. And, uh, of course, you know, everybody's got a little bit of a flask of something to drink or something and just kind of talking and chatting until everybody falls asleep. Well, you know, invariably I've got to get up in the middle of the night and go and have have a pee. And that happens to me frequently. <laughs> I assure you. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I mean, the sky was absolutely shocking clear. It was a full moon. Uh, it was absolutely gorgeous. And I turned around to grab a camera and try and take a picture, and it was gone. And uh, But that fleeting moment, you know, lives with me. So, moving on, because I know Nepal is just one of your many, many experiences. Um, I understand you've hiked in Peru as well. A little bit, but not really that extensively. There, I'd love to do the Cordelio Blanca, which is, I guess, I think it's like 10 or 12 days. I think you can do it actually up to like two weeks on different routes and just, you know, hiking around the massif and there's you know, uh, hot springs along the way, um, things like that. But, um, yeah, I hear it's a very nice hike. That's one of my life list hikes. And I, I think you mentioned the burning bush to me before, too, right, in the Middle East? I think that's and, Egypt, if I uh, recall correctly. Yeah, Sinai right? Peninsula. Um, that was a, a, a very good trip because, then again, it was hot as blazes. I don't know how my girlfriend and I made it. I mean, it was we hiked it in the middle of the day and it was not a good thing. But uh, when you get up there, the view from the top, you know, it, you feel like you're on the moon, absolutely cut off from everything. You can just kind of picture yourself, you know, in this wilderness that the Bible describes. So, and how does that compare in terms of um, number of days on the trail and mileage that you do? Um, no, that was just an overnight trip, actually. Um, we woke up. We slept at the top that night, and it was very cold. Uh, but we woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Okay. And uh, there were probably a good 40 people, 50 people up there with us uh, looking for the sunset or for the sunrise. Interesting. So, and I understand, you know, Burning Bush is basically Mount Sinai, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the monastery there. Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to ask you that because that's a Saint Catherine, like Greek Orthodox monastery, if I believe. It dates back to the sixth century, correct? Yeah, it might be. I guess Coptic. So. Interesting. So is now, from my research on it, it seems like it's. Uh, Maybe not quite as hardcore as something in Nepal. No. Or except for the heat. Right, right. The heat's the real thing during the day. You know, anybody that's been in a desert during the day, it's very hot, but also very cold at night. But you are camping. I mean, backpacking. Well, yeah, you're in sleeping bags. You know, you're on your, you know, little rollout. Back then, it was just close cell phone. 
Right, right. Those cell phone uh, mattresses. So. Are you are you actually pitching a tent at night? We actually uh, slept in a small, I guess, antechamber room uh, below the little church that was at the, or chapel that was at the top. There were probably about six of us, you know, in there, and uh, kept us out of the, you know, out of the elements. So. You know, it, even though it was cold where we were, it was probably much colder outside with the wind and the breeze. And you eat scorpions for dinner and that sort of thing? No, uh, you know, you, you do have to be a little careful with that. You know. <laughs> yeah, tell me about the scorpions. I was actually shocked to uh, find scorpions in Georgia, but uh, we actually have scorpions in Georgia for the listeners that don't realize that. But, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, I know in the Middle East they're pretty prevalent, right? Yeah, um, actually... The only time that I ever had really any kind of a big encounter with them was at the... There used to be this old derelict hotel at the top of the Sumerian Gorge in Crete. Uh, I think it's been renovated since. Uh, but we actually... I did this two years in a row, but the first year, you would just sleep right out on top of the balcony of where the rooms were supposed to be. And uh, the first time, you know, I just kicked over you know a couple of rocks to try and clean off the spot for the sleeping bag and it was just dozens of scorpions almost just crawled right out of these you know little debris and everything interesting now i also understand you've been to crete in uh greece and i believe it's the samaria gorge if i said that correctly yes samarian gorge and uh, i think i recall that you had some pretty uh interesting things to say about that yeah, I mean, it's a very nice trip. You know, uh, there's a small town, I believe it's called Peliahora. At the southern end, when you finish the trip, it's got a really nice black sand beach. It's a small little town. It's got a nice little taverna. You know, you just sit there and watch the sea. The only way you can get out of there, I believe, maybe even still now, is by the ferry. That comes, I think, twice a day, I think, through there. Um, Samarian Gorge takes probably about from top to bottom about four hours to do, so it's a nice hike, um, easy to do. You know, it's all downhill. Um, but yeah, then you know, hey, there's a nice cold beer at the end. You know, at the Taverna. And I think I understand you're, uh, if I remember, you're headed to Hawaii to do Haleakala here uh, this year. Or, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Um, Going out there for business, but you know, while I'm there, I might as well. Uh, my cousin's setting it up, and we're going to spend a couple of days walking across the crater. He's done it a couple of times, and uh, it's, you know, he said it's definitely very well worth it for sure. So essentially, your worldwide exploration continues. Well, we hope so. <laughs> so I got to ask you, for, this is for the listeners now. So we've kind of we've done a quick uh, sort of preview of some of your experiences. I know we haven't captured them all, and feel free to throw any others in there. <laughs> but um, tell me uh, now, this is the the big questions, the thought provokers. What, what, what do you think of all these uh, trips you've done, the most interesting front country experience that you've had? Um, I would say probably Chetwan National Park, Nepal. Sitting there on the cot next to my girlfriend under the mosquito net at night in a mud hut getting ready to do a safari the next day and just you know reading a book and I notice you know a mouse is coming down the wall 
And then I was like, oh, I've never seen a mouse actually vertically climb a wall before. And then I just hear, or actually see something and hear something above me on the rafters. Wait, now, just, wait a second. You've slept in Appalachian Trail shelters before. Yeah. So it, it can't be any different than that. Well, yeah, well, that's true. That's true. But I didn't necessarily ever see a cobra come out of the rafters. These were and, foreign mice chased by uh, reptiles. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. So, you know, um, this cobra comes right out of the rafter, takes this mouse right off the wall, and literally kills it and eats it right next to my cot. So I'm a little nervous. I don't get a whole lot of sleep that night. We get up in the morning. My now, how about your girlfriend? How was she sleeping that night? She slept all the way through it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a trail-hardened lady right there. Well, yeah, good Aussie girl. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I woke up in the morning. You know, she went to the bathhouse to brush her teeth and everything. You know, we were getting ready for the safari. Our guide comes over, and I tell him what happened the night before, and I told him, I was like, look. <laughs> no kidding. She finds out about this. You know, we are out of here. And he starts laughing. And I was like, what, what's so funny? He picks up a stick. And he starts thwacking at the thatch above my head. Two more cobras fall right down in front of me. I'm sitting on this hammock, and I'm about to flip right on over backside. Well, guess who walks up right behind him? Is Debbie, and she was like, we're out of here. Your Aussie lady. Yeah, we were out of there. <laughs> You're on your way back to Guantanamo Bay is where you're headed. Jeez, I tell you. Yeah, but um, that, that was something that I didn't necessarily really, I guess, understand is, you know, how close the wildlife can actually get to you, um, how common it actually is, um, you know, for the, those those encounters are actually really quite common for India and the subcontinent. For someone like me, it is not common at all. Well, you don't get that in Atlanta, Georgia a lot. You just really don't, don't you? <laughs> you just really don't. So that was actually one of my questions for you is wildlife experience. Now, is that your most exciting wildlife experience across all these trips that you've done? Well, yeah, probably so. Um, it was one of the more dramatic for sure. But, you know, well, what was it? The Cahutta, I guess about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, just camping next to a beaver pond. and Which is North Georgia for our listeners, kind of northwest Georgia, up near Tennessee. Yeah, right there by Brayfield, actually. Ma yeah. Many wild hogs in that area. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it was... Actually, it was a gorgeous morning. I mean, the temperature had just dropped where everything just, the frost just iced everything. And, uh, you know, just walking back in the morning back to the truck, and I hear a rustling going on up on the hill above me. And darn, this is the biggest, shaggiest. It was a moonshiner. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I could only wish. But, you know, this, you know, uh, wild hog was charging me coming straight down the hill right at me and i was quaking in my boots you know bacon is really good for breakfast yeah well 
you know, this was pre, you know, concealed carry permit, you know, days. Right. And uh, luckily for me, he actually had his eye on something else that just happened to be... Your Aussie girlfriend. Nah, well, you know, this, you know. <laughs> actually, I don't know. She was, she was a tough one. She was a tough one. You know, I'd put her up against anybody. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. They have some wild country in Australia, so, you know, yeah. and wild ladies, too, I understand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we won't divulge into that here in the uh, podcast. Um, so any major mishaps, I should say, like any times you feared for your life during, I mean, yeah, a lot of international travel. I know a lot of our listeners would, uh, you know, kind of question safety in some of these countries. So uh, you got to have some stories to tell here yeah well you know none of them necessarily show my intelligence <laughs> um, that's what makes this whole thing more interesting yeah. help us out here well believe it or not you know the one thing that i would tell somebody is always listen to the locals because they will be able to tell you where you can and can't go and if you don't listen to them then you know you know buyer beware um and i've done that a couple of times and it was really stupid. Yeah, that's that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you enlighten us with some of those tales? Um, you know, we actually took like a little bit of a walk along the coast of um, Egypt, um, right there on the border. What's the name of? The, I think it's called Agiba Beach. Uh, right there on the border with Libya, and you know, really nice little secluded little cove, um, and. We decided to take like a little hike down the coast, you know, down on some of the other little nooks and crannies that they have on the coast. And actually, there were a few people that were actually wanting to camp for the night, and I almost agreed to it. And these two army guys came over, you know, and followed us. From, and, Gu from Guantanamo Bay, right? No. <laughs> I just teased and, and, you know, well, they were Egyptian uh, army. Right. And, uh... They came and actually got us and told us that we could not stay because, number one, the tide was coming in. So whatever beach that we were sitting on right there was going to be underwater in about six hours. Good good knowledge to have. Yeah. Uh, plus, he also said that a lot of those little coves and nooks and everything are used by smugglers okay. being that close to the border. Right. And uh, it was just not safe. Uh, he even said that they're the military and they wouldn't even go down there or stay down there at night just because of that. So um, their post was up up on the cliffs, and they stayed there. <laughs> so so I got to believe you've had more fearful moments than that when you were out. Yeah, well, you know, we decided to do this little side trip in Kashmir and didn't listen to the... You know, you're supposed to check in at every town and village with the police station. And, you know, they tell you whether you can continue on or not, depending on any insurgent activity or whatever might be coming across the border. And uh, we decided not to listen to, you know, these guys. And as, young, as young people often do. Well, you know, and he ended up... You you weren't hiking on the border of Iran by any chance, were you? No, it was okay. uh, Pakistan. Okay, I'm just India, kidding. Because, you know, those uh, hikers just got released after a couple of years in prison, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it was pretty easy for us to... A lot of these trails are very well marked. They're used by all the locals, so it's just like a highway. Um, but the other side of the mountain... 
could be held by somebody else or could actually be another country. I mean, the border, you know, is not necessarily like has a fence on it or anything. Right. Um, so, people like do like our porous border to Canada and Mexico, you mean? Could be. <laughs> exactly. Could be. And um, the next thing we know is we hear fire behind us. And I guess some of the insurgents had actually attacked the town that we had just been in. And uh, we decided to try and make it to the next town. And actually there were, you know, some people that were trapped on the road uh, between the two towns. And, you know, whether it's a yak or a donkey or whatever it is that they've got loaded up or, you know, some of the porters or even families. So we all kind of congregated in one area, and we actually had to sit there for like about six, seven hours and wait for the military to actually fend these guys off and then actually come back up the trail and come and get us. And that was the end of the trip, actually. It was only like the third day. Hey, you, don't really, walk back. you don't really get that on the Appalachian Trail here in the uh, East Coast, do you? No, you don't hear a whole lot of mortar and automatic weapon fire. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Good point. Um, so... Planning and preparation. Somebody listens to this podcast, they're inspired by your worldwide wandering. (laughs) Um, What sort of planning do you need, or did you just kind of wing it? I'm kind of guessing that you just sort of winged it. Uh, No, not really, because even though I I only planned on going for like a six-week trip, uh, I'd done a lot of research on working abroad. I can't remember the girl's, the author's name of the book that I read, but that was one of them, you know, the Lonely Planet guidebooks from Tony Wheeler, Maureen Wheeler, you know, those are really what inspired me to check these places out, because they had been there before, and these places were just like a place I could afford, <laughs> you know, some places in Thailand, we were paying a dollar fifty a night, and we were right on the water, you know, you Living, living the Viva Loco on pennies for the dollar. There. Exactly. And um, that that a lot of people, you know, would not believe it, but it absolutely is true. Um, you don't need a lot of money to travel if you travel smart. You just right? need more time. Yeah, and, you know. It's not the money, it's the time. It really is, yeah. So... So um, are there any language requirements that you really need, or can you get by with English pretty well? And, yeah, any the tourist areas, you know, English is readily, you know, spoken to some degree. Uh, but you, you should really learn at least the rudiments. Definitely please, thank you, uh, what, how much, you know, where, you know, things. The bathroom. On you, yeah. It's always a good one to know. The, the important stuff. The important stuff. Did you, um, did, I mean, you obviously did some of these trips solo. I know you had a, a girlfriend with you on some of these. I mean, any uh, concern about going solo on any of these uh, trips? No, it's surprising. You know, I left by myself, and I was never alone for three years. So um, even, you know, you meet people on the plane. You meet people, you know, on whatever on the train, right? bus, train, you know, however, you know, whatever mode of transportation. Um, Do you meet Australian ladies when you're traveling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, you meet people really from around the world, you know, not just 
you know, you speak to people from, you know, you'll be in a cafe and you'll hear at least five, ten different languages being spoken. There's something to be said about, you know, wow, you know, you're not necessarily that unique, you know, or everybody speaks a little bit of English, but we don't necessarily speak a lot of other languages. I mean, you obviously were able to get around very easily with just English. I think that's an important message here for our listeners. Sure. Yeah, they, they, they can definitely get by easy enough, you know, in most of the populated type of areas. Um, that When they start going farther out is when, you know, when they will need it the most. So did you ever consider dropping out of society for about five years and just, you know, working your way around the world? I read a book about working your way around the world. I considered it, you know, I really considered it there for a while when I came off the Appalachian Trail, having lived that vagabond lifestyle for a while. There isn't a day that doesn't go by I don't consider it, you know. But to some degree, you did drop out of society and travel for a while, right? No, not necessarily, because I work the whole time. Um, You don't don't have the, you know, advantage or, you know, of money. You don't have the luxury of being able to... You have to work in order to make money. If, you, if you're going to be gone that long, you will have to make money while you're gone. Uh, you have to be a little creative sometimes on how you do it. Um, and you also have to work a lot of hours. You know, I would work 80 or 100 hours a week sometimes when I was living in London just to be able to pay rent and see if I could save money. Um, now, to, granted, to keep traveling, right? Well, that, then whatever money I was able to save, the exchange rate is so favorable sometimes in some of the countries we would visit, whether it's the Middle East, you know, Asia, Southeast Asia, and you know, other parts, um, that does afford you extra time, you know. But then in between, you know, we would also take, you know, like side weekend trips, you know, hitchhike down to Pamplona. You know, um, actually go down to Morocco or Gibraltar, you know, hit Gibraltar and everything like that. You can take, you know, side trips for a few weeks and then come back and then start doing it. Being that kind of industry or lifestyle, I guess, is transitions from I'm working from one month and then the next month I come back and work you actually start getting into a network of people where you can actually do that. Just basically like being a temporary contractor all the time. So did you ever ever get so deathly sick that you just were about ready to pack it in and head home and be done with this whole like wilderness travel, uh, vagabond lifestyle? Or? You know, I never really had that much of a problem as far as being sick. Um, I mean, even, you know, I had malaria a couple of times and it was kind of like having the flu <coughs> um, you know I had a, you know I guess mosquitoes I bet I guess were a problem for me because I never really had like a bad food born you know I had the malaria a couple of times and then I don't know if it was the dengue fever or not but in Thailand but I was pretty sick there for a few days yeah, which well, actually, it was more than a few days. It was like about nine days. I was like out, but I was on Koh Tao and it was Turtle Bay. It was a beautiful spot, and you know, but that was a, that was a rough. It was a that was a rough 
patch right there. But I, I never really, I thought it was never really that that bad. Yeah, which, which is going to happen to you if you travel, obviously, right? You know, yeah, especially you're gonna get sick. Yeah, you're going to get the flu and stuff like that. I mean, sure. You know, I was lucky. I, I guess, you know, things like malaria and these other things can be a lot worse. It just depends. Whether I actually had, you know, the dengue fever, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you know, the malaria. It could have been the flu for all I knew. You know, I mean, that's the way it felt like to me. So, so now you live in Atlanta. You ever get restless? You know, you've had all these sure. incredible international experiences. Do you ever get restless and say, uh, you know, I need to disappear for a few years? And you know, I don't know if it's necessarily for a few years anymore. Um, a few months. Definitely a few months, you know, could be doable for sure. But because, no kidding, I honestly don't think you really can decompress on a vacation until you're actually gone at least two to three weeks. I agree with And that. even then, you know, it still is going to take some time for you to kind of still disconnect. So I think people need to take multiple month vacations instead of multiple week. You know, I think they need more time off. So I agree with you. And that being said, I know you have a wish list. You, you and I have talked about your wish list. <laughs> Do you want to share that here with our listeners a little bit? Like, you know, where, where are you, you know, when I you mean, win I the lottery, would... where are you going? Well, I would love, I mean, love to just hike through Angkor Wat in Cambodia. That's probably my, the place I've always, always just wanted to go and see. And why is that? Well, it rem- I would imagine the one place I, uh, one of the places that I've loved going to the most was Tikal in Guatemala, and it is the complete Indiana Jones experience. It really is. Did you take your hat when you went there? Yeah, you had to take the felt hat. But uh, it really is. I mean, you're surrounded by wildlife. You're what about, in the middle what about, of a. What, what about your bullwhip? No, no, no bullwhip. Oh, Can't man. get it through customs. Come on. <laughs> but uh, you know, that is probably my number one place. I would love to see you know the, the Great Wall. Just China in general, to me, is one of those countries you could spend a lifetime and just even just scratch the surface. Um, I would love to at least get to Palenque in Mexico. That's the one Maya city I haven't been to yet. That I uh, yeah I, I need to get to. So I'll, I'll get there probably the soonest. Um, you know. So so all your international travels, I have to ask you. The most exotic women in the world. <laughs> You know, it's kind of surprising. Uh, Are you going to say Australia? Uh, no. Uh, though, you know, hey, they got it going on. The girls in Oz have it going on. Um, you know, it was really quite surprising um, to me. India, every time you turn around, you know, um, you see it in the children, you know. You know, the women, it's just... just that's my personal, I guess, appeal. But, you know, uh, Israel was the biggest surprise, actually. But I lived in a lot, too, so uh, that's more of a tourist area. So I think that would be a little bit more, it was different from the north. But, you know, Israel was was a surprise. You've come a long way since Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
Well, Philip, uh, thanks a lot for being on the podcast tonight. Well, thanks for having me. We've had a lot of great adventures in the outdoors. Yeah, yeah. We'll have more. I'm sure that they've only just begun. But you, you are the most traveled man that I know. Well, hopefully we'll we'll work on that. Maybe you could be the the second most. Well, I'll talk to my wife about that. Yeah. But you are truly the worldwide wanderer. <laughs> thanks. And thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Tonight. Right. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Into Backpacking Podcast. This is your host, Bird Shooter, wishing you the best for your travels on the trail. To subscribe to this show, visit iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And give us a thumbs up or a positive comment while you're there. You can also download shows directly from intobackpacking.com. Just click the Podcast tab on the main menu. Music for this show was provided by Jerris under a Creative Commons license and is titled Hillbilly Anarchy. This show is a production of N2 Backpacking and is copyrighted by N2 Ventures Inc. For more information on this podcast or to provide feedback or comments on this or future shows, please visit us at n2backpacking.com. That's the letter N, the number two, backpacking.com. <laughs>